are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Ruth meets Boaz in the grain field. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for sharing scripture with us this morning. You know, that reading finishes with the phrase from which we get the title of this whole message series, Refuge Under His Wings. Esther and I live up near the Sherburn National Wildlife Refuge. In fact, when you're in Zimmerman, there's a sign there by the pine trees where it says, Zimmerman, gateway to the Sherburn National Wildlife Refuge. So Zimmerman's not known for a whole lot, I don't think, but that seems to put us on the map a little bit. When you think about a wildlife refuge, and this one in particular, it is a really good place to be if you're a trumpeter swan or a sandhill crane or a red-headed woodpecker. The Sherbourne National Wildlife Refuge is known for the thousands of birds that migrate through the area or that live in its oak savannas. The refuge is a safe place for them to be where they can build their nests, they can pass through on migration, they can raise their young. It's protected land, the refuge is, meaning that they're safe from human disturbance or from housing developments popping up. It's safe. And if you're a bird, the refuge is exactly where you want to be. And so as we think about this word this morning, refuge, I wonder if for you and I as people, we need a place to find refuge. Do we need to find a place where we're safe? I think the answer is absolutely yes, even for the biggest and toughest of us. We're in need of refuge. We know the feeling of being vulnerable or of being attacked, of needing a safe place to land. 
or of needing a place to run and hide and be rescued from danger. You and I know what that feels like. And that's what the book of Ruth is about, the refuge under his wings. We're starting off this new year by studying this lesser known little book of the Old Testament. And yet it's a portion of scripture that in a way sums up the whole story of scripture, the story that you and I are part of, running for refuge, finding redemption, and being fully restored. It's the story of scripture. Last week, we looked at chapter one in Ruth, where we met this Israelite family from Bethlehem that fled to Moab to the east to take refuge from a famine. But while they were there, another disaster struck. The husband, Elimelech, died, leaving his wife, Naomi, and their two young boys. The years went by, and those boys grew up into young men, and they married Moabite women, and we met Orpah and Ruth. But then a third tragedy happened, and both of those sons passed away. So Naomi's lost her husband, both of her boys, and all she has left now are two daughter-in-laws. And then it's in her grief that there comes this one word of hope, one word of good news, and that is that the famine in Israel has passed, and so Naomi could return home. So she sets out from Moab, and as she does, she turns to her daughter-in-laws, and she tells them to stay back, to stay with their families, to just try to make a fresh start. You know, maybe they'll find a husband and be able to remarry. So Orpah takes her advice, but Ruth insists that she will not leave Naomi. And she says there essentially, I'm going to go with you. I will stay with you. I'll live with you and I will die with you. That was her commitment, this lifelong commitment to Naomi. So these two women, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, head back to Bethlehem and they arrive just in time for the barley harvest. That's where we left off last week at the end of chapter one. So as chapter two begins, we're introduced now to a new character, and that's this man in Bethlehem named Boaz. But in verse one, it's almost just like a name drop. We hear of Boaz, that he's a relative of Naomi, but then nothing else. It's almost just like this suspense has been created. And now we know to keep our eyes out for Boaz because he's probably going to show up again. In the meantime, Ruth and Naomi have to figure out how they're going to survive. I mean, they've showed up in Bethlehem as two poor widows with nothing to their name. Remember what we said last week, they're in a patriarchal society. So to be husbandless and sonless as they both are meant that you had no means to make a living. Naomi was up there in years. Ruth was a younger widow, but she was a foreigner and that carried with it its own sense coming back into a foreign land. And that's emphasized throughout the story. Wherever it says Ruth the Moabite, it's like we're being reminded, yes, this is not her home. She's a foreigner. So what are they going to do? Well, taking the initiative, Ruth says to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And that is our key word for today, favor. It comes up in this chapter three times, and this is the first instance. And this is what Ruth and Naomi are going to need. It's favor, the approval or support of someone, someone who's willing to show them mercy because they've got nothing. Ruth says, I'm going to go look for some leftovers in the field. 
And Naomi says to her, all right, my daughter, go ahead. And so off Ruth goes into the fields. It says she entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. I want you to be able to picture this with me. So let me just describe both harvesting and gleaning in scripture. When it came time to harvest, the landowner would bring in some hired help to work the fields. It was a team effort. The first ones in that formation would have been a group of men, and they would do the job of reaping. That meant that they had a scythe, that tool in their right hand, and they would grab the stalks of grain in their left, and then they would, with a sweeping motion, cut it off at the base. And they'd walk and cut and gather those stalks under their left arm until they had a whole armful. And then they would drop the pile there in the field and start collecting once again. Now, the next ones to come behind them were the hired women. And their job was to follow behind the reapers and bundle and bind up all those loose stalks of grain. They'd wrap it and cord it up together so it could be picked up and then easily carried back to the barns for threshing. But then behind those women, there's actually a third group that may or may not be following, and that is those who were gleaning. Now, the activity of gleaning was a specific custom established in the Old Testament law. In fact, I'd like to take us just briefly to Leviticus 23. This is one of several places where we could go and see gleaning prescribed for Israel. So Leviticus 23, it says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord, your God. So the farmer is told, don't harvest every square inch of your field. Just leave some on the edges. And then the stuff that you drop on your first pass, well, don't worry about going back to pick it all up and make a clean sweep. Just leave those things, leave the gleanings for the poor and the foreigner. And I want us to just pause for a minute and think about how awesome it is that God is like that. I mean, he established this in Israel's law and he says then, I am the Lord your God. This is who I am. This is my character to look after the poor and the foreigner. And you know, some of us might think of the word welfare as almost a derogatory term. You know, you've heard the same things that I've heard, right? Welfare is for lazy people. People take advantage of welfare. People on welfare should just go out and get a job. I mean, you've heard these things said just as I have. But then I read scripture and we see that God is deeply concerned for the welfare of people. Gleaning was part of Israel's welfare system to look after the poor and the foreigner. A law of Israel in the Old Testament and a responsibility of the church in the New. Now that should be paired, of course, with the Bible's emphasis on hard work and initiative and responsibility. There's no place in Scripture for laziness or idleness. And we see these qualities demonstrated in Ruth, don't we? But let's not play these things out against each other. I mean, Ruth was poor. She needed help. Israel had provision to provide that help in their law. And then Ruth, for her part, gets out into the fields to glean. 
Do you have this picture in mind? The reapers are out ahead. The women are binding and bundling as they follow. And then came the gleaners just trying to gather and find enough leftovers to take back home and eat for the day. That's what Ruth was doing. And then halfway through verse three, this character Boaz comes up again. And it says, as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And isn't that a wonderful turn of phrase? Did you catch that where it says, as it turned out, you know, as if just by chance, it just so happened that she had landed on the field of Boaz, who, of course, is Naomi's relative. And you have to picture out there just this whole jumbled patchwork of fields around Bethlehem. And of all the places where Ruth could have gone, she picked this one. Or shall we say God led her to this one? Because that's the point here, that this wasn't coincidental. This was the providence of God. Have you ever turned around and marveled at how God was orchestrating what you thought maybe in the moment were happenstance events? I remember being a freshman in college, and I wanted to keep going with the German classes that I had done in high school. So I was going to go sign up for a class in my first fall semester out there, but I found out that they weren't offering German. Just in this, this little window of time, they usually did have German classes, but they were between professors, and so it wasn't available. And so I thought, all right, well, I'll maybe find a German tutor and at least I can meet one-on-one with someone and keep after this a little bit. The trouble was, you know, where was I going to find a German tutor? And I don't know how this even came up, but in conversation, a friend then told me, I know a girl from Germany. She's here and maybe you could study with her. And so then one day in the coffee shop on campus, this mutual friend from Hawaii introduced Esther to me. And that's how we got to know each other. And we would meet once a week for German lessons and I would pay with cups of coffee. And that's all it was to start. In fact, there's one time my parents were visiting. We were outside walking down the sidewalk and Esther is coming our direction. And so then I had a chance for the first time to introduce my parents to Esther and it's my German tutor and, you know, just like a 30 second exchange. And then we kept going on our way. And as soon as Esther was out of earshot, my parents are elbowing me and they're saying, hey, how about Esther? You know, she's nice. She's cute. You should date her. And I'm saying to them, no, no, mom and dad, she's just my German tutor. We're just friends. And in fact, I was, I was actually interested in a different girl named Stephanie. And I had put all my time and effort into winning Stephanie's affection probably also was being reflected in my grades there my freshman year. And things were looking good. You know, that year came to a close and I'm like, boy, this, I think we're super close. I think we're going to come back in the fall of our sophomore year and, and then it'll be official. There was a summer in between and I went up to Alaska to work a summer job. And just before summer ended, I got an email. This was before the era of texting, but I did get an email from Stephanie and it said, hey, I just wanted to let you know that I'm transferring to Berkeley and I won't be coming back to LA. And I remember just being devastated at this news. You know, I mean, I was finally going to get back to campus and see her and now she wasn't ever going to be back. And I remember getting back to campus that fall and then just feeling like, 
I don't even want to be here. I, I'm going to blow this popsicle stand. I'm going to move to Germany and go study abroad. I'm up for the next adventure. And I finished the fall semester that sophomore year. And in January 2002, I made the move. And guess who picked me up at the airport in Germany? It was my German tutor, Esther. She was home for J-term. And so she helped me get settled and brought me actually back to her parents' house where I could get over jet lag those first few days. And it was there that all of a sudden I was seeing my German tutor with different eyes and I fell in love. Now, if the college had offered a German class, I wouldn't have met her. If we didn't both know that mutual friend from Hawaii, I don't know who would have introduced us on a campus of 6,000 students. If Stephanie hadn't transferred, I wouldn't have been interested in going to Germany. And if I hadn't gone to Germany, then I don't know what it would have taken for me to finally figure out that Esther was the one. Scripture says, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And I bet you have some stories like that that you could tell in your own life. And that is what is called providence. It just so happened, right, that Ruth went to the field of Boaz. And it just so happened that Boaz was from the clan of Elimelech. And it just so happened then in verse 4 that Boaz arrived at his field. And we have this joyful little greeting here that he shares with the harvesters. So Boaz arrives and he says, the Lord be with you. And, and they wave back from the field and they say to him, the Lord bless you. I mean, it's just almost this idyllic little scene playing out. I can smell the fresh barley in the air and, and I can hear the harvesters are singing in the fields. And, and then the boss shows up and we have this cheery, God-saturated greeting. Those of us old enough to work, I mean, we know what it's like to have a boss that is good to work for and a boss that is not so good to work for. When I worked at a restaurant in high school, there was one evening where a customer ordered a certain glass of wine. So I went back to fulfill the, you know, the order the table had put in. And, and in doing so, I accidentally grabbed the wrong bottle. I opened a $100 bottle of wine that was the wrong wine and that we only sold by the bottle. My boss, the owner of the restaurant, she ran a tight ship. I mean, she didn't mess around. But that night, I tell you, she showed me grace. She showed me so much grace. I got to keep my job. She didn't take a dollar out of my paycheck. She just said to me, Bjorn, don't ever do that again. With, I think, the tiniest little bit of a smile as she said it. You don't forget a good boss. And I have never forgotten that boss that I had. Boaz was a good boss. From the moment he says hello, we know that this is a man of integrity. This is a man who cares for his workers. And there's this mutual respect and affection for one another. As he looks out into his field, then he sees there's this young woman out there that he doesn't recognize, somebody he doesn't know. And so he inquires with the manager and he says, hey, who is this young woman out there in the field? And the manager says to him, oh, that's Ruth the Moabite, the one who came back with Naomi. She asked permission to glean and she's been out there from morning till now, he says. Uh, in fact, she only took one little break to rest in the shade and then she was right back at it. 
And here we should point out that you and I probably do not know what it's like to work in the heat of the Near East. I mean, it hits 90 degrees in Minnesota, and we start complaining like it's an inferno out there. But there are places where it's 90 degrees at six o'clock in the morning and climbs from there. So the manager's pointing out, you know, this Moabite lady, I tell you what, she knows how to work. She is industrious. And so Boaz calls her over, and we see even more of his character in this next exchange. He says to her, and I'll just summarize it for us, don't go glean anywhere else. I want you to stay with my workers in my field. I've told my men not to lift a finger against you. You're safe here. And by the way, when you're thirsty, and you will get thirsty under this hot sun, then I want you to feel free to go and take a drink from the water jars. This is exceedingly, abundantly gracious. Boaz, a wealthy landowner, welcoming a poor foreign woman. And not just to glean, but to be given protected status among his employees and to drink from the company water cooler. And this is why Ruth's response is so gracious. It says she dropped to her knees and bowed her face to the ground. And she said in verse 10, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And then we see how fast word travels in a small town like Bethlehem. Boaz has already heard about this Moabite woman. He just didn't recognize her and knew that's who it was. And he tells her, he says, I've heard about what you've done for your mother-in-law after your husband died, how you left your home and your family and you came to live here. And he says, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I shared with the kids last week before we did the kids blessing that God helps us to understand what he's like by describing in his word ways that we can picture it. You know, so God doesn't actually have wings, but if you imagine how a mother bird will tuck her young ones under her wings, that's a picture of how God loves, protects, and cares for us. We're reminded here, of course, of the words of Jesus in Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. We can take refuge under his wings. Isn't that an awesome picture? Psalm 91 uses this picture, and it says, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. And one other example would be Psalm 57. How many of us might be feeling exactly this sentiment right now in our life? Have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I want us to be very careful to see something here, that Ruth did not just go to Israel because she didn't want to leave Naomi. I mean, that's true, but don't miss the greater claim of the book. And that is, she went to Israel because there was the God under whose wings she could find refuge. What is the greater claim 
of your life. You and I just blow about as the winds of life set us on our way. You and I just follow the turns and tides and just hope for the best and that everything will work out. When we're hurting, do we nurse our own wounds or run to false comforts? Or do we run to take refuge under the shadow of the Almighty? Here's what Ruth said to Boaz. She said, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. That's the only thing she could say. Favor is like that. It's undeserved. It's unwarranted. And yet it is so generous. We're into the part now we didn't read when Boaz and the team then take a lunch break. We'll pick up the story there. He calls to Ruth and he says, come on over, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. And I just want you to put this in our own terms. This is like the company CEO inviting the lowliest intern or the lowliest employee to join the senior leadership team for a special lunch. You know, CEO of Target invites the guy who collects carts in the parking lot to join him and the team for lunch. You know, they're going to go to Manny's Steakhouse. And the CEO says, hey, why don't you come along? I want you to be our guest. It says, when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some leftover. When there's leftovers in the Bible, you want to pay attention. You anoint my head with oil. What does Psalm 23 say? My cup overflows. That's abundance. Ruth ate till she was satisfied, and then she still had some left over. But she's not done working yet. She heads back into the field to glean. And as she does, Boaz leans towards his men, and he says to them, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. It's like every time we read another sentence, we see Boaz being more and more generous to Ruth. You know, for gleaning, there were definitely rules to follow. And if you got out of line, they made sure that you would never get out of line again. I mean, you did not gather among the sheaves. You followed behind the women. But Boaz tells his men, he says, hey, I want you to take extra good care of her. And I want you to even purposely drop some of the stalks so that she's guaranteed to get more than enough. And it's at this point in the story, I want us to start pulling back the curtain, as it were, and seeing the bigger picture of the book of Ruth. And here's what I mean. If you and I were a character in this story, who are we? We're Ruth. We're poor. We're the foreigner. We're the one who is beat up and in need of refuge. We're Ruth. And if you and I are Ruth, then who do you think is Boaz? It's none other than the Lord himself. Boaz is a type, a foreshadowing of the greater Boaz named Christ. Do you want to know how God feels about you? You want to know how much God loves you, why he went to the cross for you? Then look at how Boaz cares for Ruth. It's over the top. It is more than enough. It is generous and abundant beyond measure. In a word, there is favor in his eyes. There is favor for you.
It says Ruth gleaned till evening. And then she threshed out the barley, meaning she separated the kernels from the husks. And when all was said and done, she collected about an ephah. Ephah does not mean a whole lot to you or I, but if we follow a footnote down to the bottom of our page in the Bible, it says an ephah is about 30 pounds, 30 pounds of edible grain. At the Y this week at the office, I picked up a 30-pound kettlebell, and I'll tell you what, that is not an easy weight to swing around for a long time. So Ruth probably fills her shawl and slings it over her shoulder, this huge pile of grain that she's bringing home with her. And when she arrived back in town, her mother-in-law was waiting for her, as mothers, of course, are prone to do. You know, I remember coming home in high school when it was curfew, and there would be my mom waiting up in the living room for me. My dad, he'd been asleep probably for the last two hours, no problem, but mom was there waiting. And Naomi is waiting for Ruth, and she sees her lugging this 30-pound bag of grain, and she says, where did you get all this? Whose field did you glean in? And Ruth says to her, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. And Naomi's jaw hits the floor. She says, the Lord bless him. She knows Boaz, of course. And she says, the Lord bless him. He's not stopped showing his kindness, his hesed. Remember we talked about last week. He's not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And then she added, that man is our close relative He is one of our guardian redeemers. And we're going to finish here for today and pick up this idea of the guardian redeemer next week. But let's join Naomi in speaking these words of blessing to close today. That the Lord has indeed not stopped showing his kindness to us. You know, Naomi last week, if you remember, she was heartbroken. She was heartbroken, and perhaps there is reason for sorrow or anxiety or despair in your own life right now, in this present moment. But the word of Scripture to you today is that in life and in death, God has not stopped showing his loving kindness to you. He has not stopped extending his wings and giving you refuge. And he has not stopped short of looking upon you with favor because of the cross, because of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.